talking about our salvation and what that salvation means. And so we want to return to that. Then we'll uh, go back to uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing. We'll be talking about the eyes of Jesus again. And then on the second Sunday of November, we'll be looking at uh, another topic that's been suggested from you all. So just to keep you in mind of where it is we're heading. And so today we want to talk about this beautiful passage from the book of Ephesians. You know, the popularity of John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, is really kind of a strange thing. It's sung by all sorts of people all over the world. And while many sing it sincerely, and I think with an understanding of the words and a concept of their meaning, countless others have no real grasp of what they're saying or what they're singing. They like the song, they like the tune, it's familiar to them, but that's all. Few of these people would be ready to admit that they were ever wretched, and certainly not wretched in the eyes of God. And most wouldn't consider themselves to be lost or to be blind. And yet they sing with gusto, even with a sentimental tear in their eyes sometimes as they, as they sing this hymn without really knowing what they're singing about. John Newton, the author, knew what these words meant. He wasn't waxing philosophical or sentimental when he wrote that hymn. They're a very realistic characterization of what he experienced as an individual. There came a time, he confesses, that he would describe his state as being, as a man being filled with the most excruciating passions, eager desires, bitter rage, and black despair. He writes, whether I looked inward or outward, I could perceive nothing but darkness and misery. It's out of that heart that this hymn comes, the change of that heart, but a heart who really experienced those things. Listen to it again. Whether I looked inward or outward, I could perceive nothing but darkness and misery. He further confesses that the time he was ready to throw himself into the sea, when he was in that state, he seriously considered committing suicide. He looked at himself and saw nothing but darkness. He looked around him and saw nothing but darkness. And he said, I seriously considered just throwing myself into the sea. But he says, the secret hand of God restrained me. He wasn't yet the Lord's in his own heart, but the Lord had his eye upon him already. And he restrained him from taking that action. And though that casts a dark enough picture, things actually got worse. He abandoned eventually all restraint when he decided not to take his life. He just abandoned all restraint and not only sinned with what he calls a high hand himself, but he says, I made it my study to tempt and seduce others upon every occasion. But I wasn't just content to be this wretch myself, I tried every way I could 
to get everybody else to join me in my wretchedness. Now, there's much more, of course, to a story. But I've shared this much with you to impress upon you the depth of his own sense of wretchedness, blindness, and despair. The words of that hymn aren't uh, symbolic or allegorical. They were a, a, a true expression of this man's own experience. He was tragically and irretrievably lost, and the Lord found him and rescued him. Newton himself described his rescue with the words of Ezekiel, chapter 16, verses 4 through 7. In Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 4, the Lord is speaking, and he's speaking of Israel. And he says, And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of, out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were aboard on the day that you were born. And when I passed by, passed by you, and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. And this is the rescue of the Lord. No one else was showing any compassion, and there was no way to survive. But God, in his mercy, looked down on Newton. And Newton says, that's my story. That's how I was saved. That's what God did for me. And when Newton was penning his memoir and wrote about um, that before he was saved, he was tempted to throw himself into the sea, but God protected him, he paused in the memoir and he put an interjection in there himself. He interjected a prayer that he would never fail to give God glory for keeping him from not taking his own life, but casting himself into an eternal state of sorrow and suffering. So he's writing those words about his life, and he tells us, I came to that point, and I was ready to, to throw myself into the sea, but God, with his unseen hand, protected me. And then he stops and says, Lord, please, don't ever let me forget this. Don't ever let me fail to give you praise for this. Don't ever let me fail to glorify you for it. He was afraid that he might forget it or, or that he might come short of offering to God the thankfulness that he deserved for that gracious act. Psalm 103, verse 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And that's what he was praying for. And this hymn, Amazing Grace, is a part of the effort by Newton to lift up the glory and the grace of God the glory and the grace of God manifested in his life. And every time it's sung without that intent in mind, it denies the Lord of his glory for which it was designed by its author. In the end, it's only those who know that they're lost who know the blessings of being found, being rescued, and being saved. 
and who are singing in the true spirit of the hymn and its author. Where that condition remains unknown or known and disregarded, there can be no real interest in salvation and no real heart in singing that hymn. Now, the Lord has many ways of bringing men and women and children to the realization of their lost condition, bringing them to see and sense that they're without God and therefore without hope in the world. But one thing that we can say, to be sure, is this. If he does not make it known, it can't ever be rightly known or understood. A person may be miserable. He or she might even feel desperate. He or she might even despair of life itself. But more often than not, like Newton at the time, suicide is wrongly seen as a way of ending sorrow, pain, and bitterness. Because for the lost soul, it's merely the beginning. There will be sorrow and gnashing of teeth where their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Now the Lord knows every heart. He knows every heart before him here this afternoon, young and old. There is no creature that's hidden in his sight, Hebrews 4 says, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If your heart is lost and you know it, you may be sure the Lord knows that as well. And yet he has graciously preserved you to this moment so that you might hear and take honest stock of your condition. Hear him and his word. And rather than despair, call upon him who is even now showing you grace and mercy. So when we look at Ephesians chapter 2, there are many serious things to be considered in that passage and meditated on. And among them is what we read, and I suppose many of you have memorized, in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I've memorized that, but in the King James Version, and so I had to look at the ESV because that's what we're using here, so I make sure I get it right. First of all, this verse, verse 8 brings us to grace. And the problem that comes or arises in taking up a passage like this one is that if you think about it, what more can be said about this than has been said? But we're approaching it today not... Uh, to offer some novel or unique comment uh, on the nature of this grace, but to contemplate it, to contemplate the truth and meditate on it. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 4, verse 8, another verse that many people have memorized, he says, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so that's what we want to do. So when we think of grace, we think about being the object of God's unmerited favor. And that, beloved, is a profound thing. And the more that we focus on that and come to grips with the reality of the fallen nature of man and of our own sinfulness, 
And the more we understand and study the holiness and the righteousness of God, and the more we grasp his knowledge and understanding of who and what we are, the more grand the thing appears. Here am I, this sinner, and the holy and righteous God of heaven has determined to show me unmerited favor. Out of his own love, out of his own purpose. And the more we reflect on that, the more grand it appears, the more awesome it appears in our minds and hearts. This gap between us, and yet how that gap was straddled by the love of Christ for us. In Psalm 116, verse 7, the psalmist says, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. This grace appeared not just before we first believed, but before the foundations of the world. And that very point, beloved, was designed for his glory. The very idea being that you were shown this grace before the foundations of the world, the very idea being that merit could not have been involved simply because we did not yet exist except in accord with his plan and his purpose. So the fact that love was attached to us before the foundations of the world is a testimony to his glory because that love was placed on you before you were in any way in existence except in his purpose and design. So he determined to give you life and to send his son to die for you that you might have life more abundantly before you ever were. As Charnock observed, it was our rebellious, willful, and stubborn state of enmity towards God that occasioned the breaking out of grace. And he would describe the case with us all from that passage that Newton used. In other words, the Lord says, I'm walking by and I look, and there you were. And no one had cut your cord, no one had cleaned you, no one had wrapped you in swaddling clothes. You were lying there in an open field dying. And I turned and said, live, and gave you life. And it was our condition, our hopeless condition, that brought forth the grace that God shows towards us. In Ezekiel 16.6, And when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood. I said to you, in your blood, live, live. Calvin says, our salvation is the true looking glass wherein to behold the infinite glory of God, for it is his will to be known by his goodness above all things. So by grace we've been saved, and salvation is again something easily taken for granted. But the whole concept opens the heart to the most blessed reality. Salvation implies being made safe. Salvation implies being delivered from every danger and from every threat. It speaks of healing from 
deadly wounds and illnesses. It refers to being made well and whole, and it implies a blessed preservation as well. It's good for us to reflect on the reality of that. In Psalm 103, verses 3 through 5, the psalmist said that the Lord is the one who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. To be saved is to stand before eternity with a solid sense of security and of wellness and of peace and of wholeness that when rightly understood fills the heart with an unspeakable joy. None of us knows how many days the Lord's going to give to us. Some of us are standing nearer to the edge of eternity than others. But as God's people, saved by his grace, we can stand on that edge secure, confident, whole, at peace, because we have been saved. In Isaiah 35.10, Isaiah says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We don't ever picture those who have gone before us into the kingdom and into the presence of Christ as morose or depressed, or hobbling, or painfully making their way into the presence of the Lord. We picture them as they're described in the word, full of joy and gladness, singing and praising God. And we know what it's like. We've seen brothers and sisters whose, whose physical abilities have been so limited and, and crushed even by illness. And then they're gone from us. And they're, they're gone from that suffering. And they're in the presence of the Lord. And their hearts are full of joy. And we all stand because we're saved on the brink of eternity in that way. And we're saved through faith. Faith is the gift of God's grace, both in its operation in the heart and in the place that it's been granted in the eyes of God and his justice. That's part of the, the greatness of faith. James said in James 2.5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? You know what he's talking about? You, who believe. You're the poor ones in this world who he has chosen by, by faith to be rich in his kingdom. He's given you the promise of those who love him. And you're the poor who are now rich, made rich by faith. If God and grace didn't grant to the doubting and fearful heart faith and trust, we couldn't conjure it up or hope to find it on our own. We're not inclined to trust God. In fact, we're most inclined to trust the most undependable thing that we know our own deceitful hearts 
That's what we're inclined to trust. Fools that we are. But God, knowing our foolish nature, graciously grants to you and me the grace to believe and be saved from ourselves and from our sin and, our, and from our great enemy. It's the gift of grace. His grace is planned at all, the hymn says. Tis mine but to believe and recognize his work of love and Christ receive. The next thing that our passage says is, and it's not your doing. By grace, you're saved by faith, and it's not your own doing. And that seems such an obvious matter, but the truth is that men and women struggle with this concept all the time. If they can get beyond the fact that they're not God themselves, which is sometimes very difficult, then they feel that they ought to have some part in the matter of their salvation. If they can't control it, they at least want to contribute to it, desiring to share in the glory with God. This is, of course, the enemy's own work and the means by which he labors to keep men and women from God. Because, as Calvin says, as long as individuals insist on their own merit, they will never come to him in redeeming faith and throw themselves completely upon him. Simply stated, our works must not be either trusted or rejoiced in. The Vatican was built on the desire of men and women to offer their works for their final salvation. I know people like to go visit it, and they're awed by the beauty of it. I hate it. I hate it. I have no desire to see it. To me, it's a monument of death. It was built on the desire of men and women to contribute to their own salvation. But the whole notion is foolish. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What does he have to give? And can coins, the, the, the coin of the realm of this world, the realms of this world, ever purchase a soul? What do any of us have that's sufficient to placate a divine justice that has been set in motion by willful ingratitude and reckless rebellion and the active opposition of God and his will by his dependent creatures. What can we offer? Yes, we're dependent upon you for everything, the very breath of life that we have. And we've been rebellious and willful and we hate you. But here's a little job I did. And hopefully that'll get me in good stead with you, even though I hate you. It's a pathetic scene. His creatures sinfully tinkering about and offering some broken and marred, valueless trinket by which to satisfy holy justice in order to escape the grip of the devil and the judgment of eternal life. Augustine said, the patrons of man's free will are enemies to God's free grace. The whole truth is that even if God had chosen to grant you and me a part in our salvation, that grant would have also been a matter of his grace. The glory of God is not in danger from this idea of human participation, but from the prideful arrogance that it would naturally produce. 
And then it's the gift of God. The redemption of souls is the gift of God, a, a blessing purchased by his sacrifice in the person of his son. Who but the giver of souls could hope to redeem them? Paul said earlier in Romans 3.24 that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And again, we can't add anything to all the wonderful and profound things that have been said concerning this truth. But we can reflect on it and we can delight in it. There are times in life when we expect and look for gifts, birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, and so on. But it's a real joy and a source of excitement when we receive a gift unexpectedly, and in this case, wholly undeservedly. For the elect of God, this is a gift that's not only unexpected, but it's even unsought or even desired until the Lord graciously puts that desire in the heart and inclines the soul and conscience to find peace with God. If you don't have that desire, then understand that it's not going to come from something you do within yourself. It's going to come from the Lord showing grace to you. And that grace is the promise of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is believed on by faith. It's not the result of works. As if it might not be clear yet, Paul says it again in a different way. It's by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, and it is not the result of or produced by any works done by his creatures. For neither the virtue, nor the wisdom, nor the ability, nor the righteousness of man must be put forth if we intend that God should keep still that which is his own and which he reserves to himself, the glory of salvation. And it's all done so that there'll be no boasting on our part, no bragging. We're inclined to do it, uh, unfortunately. But at the end of his life, uh, Newton had one message he hoped would go through, and that was the amazing nature of grace. Now may the Lord reveal his face, he said, and teach our stammering tongues to make his sovereign reigning grace the subject of our songs. No sweeter subject can invite a sinner's heart to sing or more display the glorious right of our exalted king. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless these thoughts and reflections to our heart today. Lord, these are things known to us, but not known well enough, not known fully enough. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us the grace to reflect on them often and to grow in our understanding and appreciation of this wonderful display of your glory, grace shown to the graceless. We thank you, Lord, for looking on us and saying, live. If there's anyone here who is not without this hope in their heart this afternoon, or who may be watching online, I pray, Father, they would hear even now your voice crying out to them, live, live, and look to the Lord Jesus Christ, and by faith in him, find everlasting life. 
Grant it for your great namesake. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.